Most of you know that we have been working our way through a sermon series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, the question that was posed 50 years ago by our friend Mr. Rogers. Unfortunately, this series comes to a tragic end as we all are aware of the tragedy that took place literally in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood yesterday in Pittsburgh. Fred Rogers lived in Squirrel Hill, many of you know. And so it, uh, it heightens the fact that we live in a world of danger and a world where becoming neighbor perhaps is becoming more and more difficult. We are mindful of our friends at Temple Sinai uh, next door. Many of you know that we have a wonderful relationship with them and we're looking forward to hosting them once again on Thanksgiving Eve. The evening before Thanksgiving, we have our traditional joint service and we look forward to worshiping with them at that point. We encourage you to look at our website this week and be paying attention to any e-blast that will be coming across your screens uh, for any information we may pass on to you about anything that we can be doing for our friends at Temple Sinai uh, over the course of the next uh, few days or weeks. But we are mindful uh, especially of this important time in their life and want to do whatever we can to support them. And then also we will be airing, uh, we had planned this all along, but we are airing a, a, um, uh, a version of the documentary that uh, many of you have seen perhaps in the theater, but many of you perhaps haven't, uh, about mid Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and about Fred Rogers' life called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And we're going to be showing that next Sunday, uh, November 4th at 4 o'clock. And uh, you can be looking for information about that on our website as well. But uh, perhaps if you haven't had the chance to see that, you can uh, view that here on our campus next Sunday at 4 o'clock. But mindful of all that has taken place and its tragic irony, let's take a few moments to pause in silence. Amen. So our scripture this morning is taken from John chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, and his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, well, go call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> A few months ago, Craigslist, that on-site place that helps you find out just about anything that you want to find out and things that you can find like jobs and apartments and automobiles, you name it, you can find it on Craigslist, announced it was shutting down the portion of its service that had to do with people. That is to say that Craigslist was removing from their search engine that part of their delivery that helped people to connect with other people for the sake of beginning a relationship. In other words, their personal ads section, i.e. 30-year-old man seeks bright, affectionate, funny woman of around the same age who likes outdoors and doesn't smoke or chew or go go with guys that do. (laughs) Unfortunately, in this ads section of Craigslist was being used for darker purposes and was was contributing to the rise of sex trafficking, so they shut it down. But what they can't shut down, and what no one can shut down, is this fundamental need for human connection, healthy human relationships. We talked about this last month. We are all in search for authentic human relationships. Human beings need human beings, and in turn, every human being has his or her own personal ad, a a fundamental appeal to be connected to people in some meaningful way. Online dating services are fast becoming the primary way by which people get to connect meaningfully. Probably 50% of the couples I marry have met online. But whether it's online or offline, each of us has this personal ad that we try to communicate to the world that attempts to help the world know how we want to communicate, how we want to connect. 
I'm guessing they didn't have personal ads back in the first century. The Middle Eastern relational world was very strictly regulated as, as who could talk to who, regulated across class and gender and religion and culture. But if there had been such a thing as personal ads back then, imagine the personal ad for the woman that we met in our lesson this morning, the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus in the region of Samaria at Jacob's well. Let's assume she takes the risk of presenting an unvarnished view of herself. Under the caption, ready for something real is the following person ad. Somewhat attached, somewhat single, Samaritan woman, five times divorced, presently cohabitating with a man, seeks a new chapter of honesty, understanding, commitment, and little judgment, open to meeting at a local well for a drink. Now, I suppose there might be enough red flags in this little posting to send most heading in the other direction, but the truth is, history has been unkind to the woman at the well. I've alluded to this in prior preaching. Puritanical commentators have historically painted the woman at the well as the loose woman with no morals, who likes to chase men and can't stay married to any of them. A bed hopper, if you will. History has conveniently and tragically forgotten that first century Jewish matrimonial law was in the court of men. This woman had very little say over who she was going to be married to and for how long it would last. Likely, she had been treated like most women in the first century as property to be managed and discarded. She had no more say over her marital life than any other woman in the first century, which was none. Truth is, Jesus makes no mention of promiscuity and speaks nothing of her sin. He just acknowledges the fact that she's had five husbands, and the one she's presently with is not her husband. She's been an object, not a person. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is that Jesus, a good Jewish rabbi, has made his way into Samaritan territory. Good Jews don't make their way into Samaritan territory. In fact, if you're a good Jew, you take the extra day or two to make your way around Samaria if you're going from the north to the south so as to not risk possible fraternization with the locals. A couple weeks ago, we talked about boundaries, lots of boundaries in this story. And the first boundary is the one between Israel and Samaria that you were not to cross over. But Jesus crosses over. Maybe his GPS stopped working. Maybe, just maybe, he ignored that voice in his head that said, in 500 feet, turn around. In 500 feet, turn around. (laughs) Danger, Will Robinson. No, he heads right into Samaria and takes his seat at the well of Jacob. Jesus is begging for a culturally inappropriate conversation. Boundary number two. A woman comes to draw from the well. Samaritan woman. First century women do not, first century men do not speak to women in public. That's hard to believe, but that is the way it was back then. It's still the way in some parts of the world today. Men do not engage women in public conversation. Big boundary. So in his time, there is good reason for Jesus to sort of stare at the ground as the woman takes her water from the well. 
no reason to talk. Boundary number two, man-woman. But Jesus talks. He speaks with her. He engages her in a conversation. It might have been enough to frighten the woman to run away, but she doesn't. She stays. As thirsty as she is, she stays. Here's a man who's talking with me like I'm a human being. Here's a person who's interested in me. Maybe he doesn't know my story. Maybe he can't even figure out I'm a Samaritan. It has to be that because if he knew my story, if he knew where I was from, he wouldn't be talking with me. Boundary number two, three, her story. But Jesus somehow knows her story. Maybe he's been listening to the rumor mill beside the well. Have you ever listened to the rumor mill? You can get lots of tidbits from the rumor mill. So Jesus knows this woman does not have a good relational history. She has been a wife of five men, and she's now living with a man who has not the dignity to make her his wife. You can't feel good about yourself when five men have passed you on, and the one you're with hasn't made a commitment to you. So Jesus looks across the well and sees not a Samaritan, not a woman, not a caricature of rumor. He sees a personal ad. And the personal ad says, thirsty. It's what most personal ads say, right? Thirsty. Because to be human is to be thirsty, thirsty for something, thirsty for someone who will listen to my story, thirsty for someone who will understand, thirsty for someone who will not judge me out of the blocks. And to this thirsty, thirsty woman, this thirsty human being, Jesus offers the gift of living water. To this parched soul, this relationally confused person, he offers this gift of living water, the kind of water that when you taste it, you don't get thirsty again. And of course, what he offers her when he offers her living water is he offers himself. He is offering to her a Messiah that she always hoped for, a Messiah who would care enough to stop and to listen and to understand and to not judge her out of the blocks, a Messiah who would respond to her personal ad of loneliness and isolation and alienation. And I suppose John, the gospel writer, tells us the story because he knows that the Samaritan woman's personal ad is not very different than our own. Because as we've said, to be human is to desire a connection with God and neighbor. We just are not healthy and to our relationships with God and with our neighbor are healthy. And so John makes sure that we hear this story of a God who wants to know this woman's story, her whole story who wants to know how thirsty we might really be for an open and honest and forgiving conversation between the creator and the created, between the creature and the creature. To say the world is full of those people is to understate the truth. The world is those people. People who just want God and others to know their story. People who are sending up personal ads to say, notice me. Never did I understand how the world is full of personal ads than when I was, on an, I was on an airplane several years ago and I was wearing a clerical collar. 
Years ago, when I first got started in ministry, I wore clerical collars during special liturgical events like weddings and funerals. So I was on this plane with a clerical collar, and as I was doing, as I was sitting there, returning home from a wedding, I found myself sitting next to a woman, middle-aged professional woman, on her way to a meeting. Now, I have to be honest with you, I am not an airplane talker. Some people actually find that to be a good time to strike up a conversation with strangers, maybe in the hope of sharing, you know, perhaps even their faith. But I'm not one who likes to talk on airplanes. I like to use that time to read, think, pray, sleep, sleep, sleep. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. But I had this collar on, and sitting next to me was this woman, and I was doing all I could to not engage her in a conversation, specifically because I had to preach the next day and I had my sermon to go over, but she saw the collar and she needed to talk. And before I could do anything, out it came. Her whole story. Two hours of her story. (laughs) More than I wanted to know. And I learned about things that would make a sailor blush we had a little confessional booth going on in row 21. (laughs) And she talked about her future. She talked about how afraid she was. She talked about how long it had been since she'd been in church. And there was this just personal ad being posted asking, won't you be my neighbor? Would you listen to me for a while? Would you let me tell your me let me tell you my story? And do you think, Padre, that God's listening? I hope Jesus forgives my reticence for airplane conversations. Because it seems to be Jesus MO, not airplane conversations per se, but conversations in general. Conversation by wandering around by talking to strangers. By talking to strangers, Jesus was always cruising for a conversation. Always seemed curious about the personal ad behind the eyes and the expression. Graciously curious. Now, we're all curious, I suppose, about other people, about the tidbits of people's lives, which of course often contributes to rumors getting started. But Jesus was graciously curious as if letting someone tell their story without fear of recrimination was itself a means of grace. Appreciative inquiry is what the organizational development people call it these days. But Jesus had them beat, I think, by about 2,000 years. Appreciative inquiry, gracious curiosity. I wonder about that. I wonder how graciously curious I am. It makes me think of a little assignment that was given me several years ago. I was taking a class on evangelism, and at the end of the class, we got the assignment to think of three people whose lives appear different than ours. Three people whose lives appear different than ours. People with whom we have fairly regular contact but whose lives appear very different than ours. 
And the assignment was to do nothing more than to pray for them. We weren't to proselytize them. We weren't to slip them literature to read. We were just to pray for them. And in praying for them, especially to give thanks for them, to give thanks for the child of God that was in them, and then let it go at that. Let God do the rest. So that's what I did. Now, two of the three people I set myself to pray for were clerks at the local dry cleaning establishment. I frequented this place enough to get to know them, and I was assured then of my future regular contact with them, and by every appearance, I was convinced that they were very, very different from me. One had found just about every space on his skin upon which to tattoo himself, and the other had found just about every part of her head in which to pierce herself. They wore different clothes than me, and they styled their hair different than mine, thank God. So I put them at the top of my prayer list, and I prayed for them every day. And I discovered something. I discovered that in my praying and giving thanks for the child of God that was in them, I looked a little more carefully at the expression on their faces. I searched for signals. I peered for the personal ad. And little by little, it appeared. Without mentioning that they were my homework or that I was praying for them, I found myself asking them questions that seemed benign and non-intrusive. And I learned that they were boyfriend-girlfriend. I learned that they were former heroin addicts. I learned that one of them had contracted AIDS from a dirty needle. And I learned that they had been clean for three years and were trying hard to put their lives back together again. One of them ended up in my office for counseling. For about nine months, we had this relationship through which they became something more than tattoos and piercing to me. And hopefully I became something more than a buttoned-down Presbyterian minister to them. And then one day, they were gone. Off, hopefully, to a better job. I don't know the continuation of their story. I wish I did. I often wonder. I don't know the continuation of the story of the woman on the airplane. I wish I did. I hope she found more listening ears. And I don't even know the continuation of the story of the woman at the well. I wish I did, too. Strange, though, how the Bible does this. The Bible seldom tells us, as Paul Harvey used to call it, the rest of the story. People have conversations with Jesus and then they walk off the page, and we don't know what happens. As if to say, as if to say, that maybe the conversation was the point. Maybe Jesus' gracious curiosity was the point, the appreciative inquiry. Maybe salvation comes when we pick those two or three different people, maybe even opposing people, and we just pray for them. We pray for them, and we give thanks for the child of God in them. Day by day, maybe even enough to make us curious, graciously curious, to pause 
to appreciatively inquire, to peer for the personal ad, and then, just then, discover what grace would have us learn.